0: listening to ping a new podcast by apenic discussing all things related to measuring the internet i'm your host robbie mitchell if you're new to the show and are wondering what this podcast is all about each fortnight we chat with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they are doing and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet for those who've been listening welcome back and thanks for the shares feedback and reviews and if you've subscribed thanks for that too Earlier this week, many people around the world welcomed in the Lunar New Year, which traditionally marks the end of winter and the beginning of the spring season. Unlike the Gregorian calendar, which starts on 1st January and ends on 31st December each year, the start and end of Lunar New Year's change as per the lunar cycle and can fall anywhere between late January and late February. The concept of measuring time according to astronomical positions and cycles has a long history, but as we've discovered over the past millennia, it is not precise, and in today's computer age, the need to be precise is paramount, even though it is still considered an afterthought by many network operators. In this episode, I'll be speaking again to APNIC's Chief Scientist, Jeff Houston, about the importance of time in the internet and how we've sought to improve its accuracy to reduce security breaches and network failures. Jeff, welcome back to Ping for 2022. Hi, Robbie. Good to be here again. And another year. Indeed, another year. Another year. What's a year? Uh, A scale of time. Time. Which is what you've told me is the topic of today's podcast. In particular, a recent announcement of the world's first hardware implementation of Network Time Protocol which is the protocol that makes sure all uh, computers are synchronized. But before we get to that, I know you'd like to take us on a journey through time.
1: (laughs) Well, let's go all the way back and and let's talk a little bit about time. Now, for the purposes of of this conversation, um, I'm going to ignore relativity and time dilation. That's brain explosion material if you start to think about it. So, you know, let's not go there. But, But let's talk about, if you will, Newtonian time, time that just ticks plonk, 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 the grandfather clock in the corner, right? Now, what is it? How did we define it? Well, what we defined this as was actually based on some pretty simple mechanics of the Earth and rotating about its axis. And you can go back some 5,000-odd years, if you wanted to, and find that the ancient Egyptians started this mess when they decided that what they were going to do was get rid of the concept of a day. That's just dull. Let's divide the day up. And they came into this concept of 12 hours of night and 12 hours of day on average. So in essence, they were night and day, irrespective of how long they were, because Egypt is not on the equator. Their lengths change of the seasons. But they decided, oddly enough, that they'd have the day Divided into 12 units and the night divided into 12 units. So in winter in Egypt, the night was the hour was longer and the days were shorter, and in summer, the opposite. And so, why 12? Oh, well, I don't know. But then this concept got taken into the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians were, in terms of integer mathematics, a little bit more adept, and they loved the number 60 not 10, but 60. So it wasn't based on humans. It was actually based on on the fact that 60 is divisible by a whole bunch of numbers. It's a very malleable number. And so the Arabs had the unenviable task of trying to take the Egyptian and the Babylonian system and pulling it together. Now, the Arabic sort of empire at the time spanned a fair amount of the world, And so what they wanted to do was a time system that wasn't dependent on where you were. So the length of an hour at night depended on whether you're in Egypt or in Reykjavik, you know, how close to how long these nights and days were, depending on where you are. But The Arabs decided, no, we are going to do a single unit of time independent of your location, and we're going to divide the day up into 24 hours, thank you, Egyptians, And each hour, we're going to divide into 60 minutes. Thank you, Babylonians. And each minute, we're going to divide into 60 seconds. Now, we're going to divide the day into units of 86,400. We're going to call that a second. And if you think about it, what that means is if you're you're standing on the surface of the earth and the earth is rotating, you will be in the same position relative to the universe every 86,400 seconds, right? Right. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> you see, the problem is that celestial mechanics, the first issue is we have a moon, and what the moon does is actually drag the Earth. There's a certain energy interchange, and we've worked it through that, in essence, days have been getting longer By 1.8 milliseconds per century. So the Earth is slowing down imperceptibly but inevitably. Now, if you're looking at a mechanical clock, 1.8 milliseconds per century isn't going to stress anyone out. But if you're looking at something that's way more precise in time, this is something you should worry about. 1.8 milliseconds per century. 1.8 milliseconds per century. Now, Again, we're talking Newton, we're talking calculus, we're talking numerical capability. We know the weight of the moon, probably to the closest gram these days, but let's, let's you know, assume we can do this. Now, if you actually do the maths, it should actually be getting slower by 2.3 milliseconds per century. We're not slowing down fast enough, if you see what I mean. <laughs> Why the difference, Jeff? Well, the Ice Age. Now this is weird but oddly enough the mass distribution of the earth affects its rotational speed. In the same way that if you stand on a spinning platform and pull your arms in you'll spin faster. Extend your arms out you'll spin, you'll you know spin slower. If you think about ice and tectonic plate movement those little bits around the crust as they move around, and particularly north-south, because that way they get closer and further away from the axis of rotation, the Earth actually spins at different speeds. So, interestingly enough, if a second is defined as 186,400 of the Earth's rotation, then over time, that's not a uniform measurement of an interval of time. Now, (laughs) like I said... Most of the time, nobody cared. But in the 1950s, we started to get into measuring our world and measuring it not just with a pendulum, not just with some rough idea of water flowing past a point as the ancient Chinese, none of that. We started measuring it with obsessive accuracy and basing it on the Earth's rotation was pretty bad because it changed speeds. So we needed some other measurement. And in 1956, the International Committee for Weights and Measures set up what they called a standard second. And it was the International Astronomical Union's measurement of a second. And the way they did this was to lengthen the baseline, not to talk about the Earth's rotation, but to talk about the earth rotating around the sun. And so then they decided that what they'd do is define a standard second. Now, get this, because this is just numbers. Uh, Take this down, listener. A standard second (laughs) is one thirty-one million five hundred fifty-six thousand nine hundred twenty-five point nine seven four seven of the mean tropical year of 1900. Now, in some ways, that's just gibberish, right? But oddly enough, it's a standard. So now a second is a second. As long as you knew if you how long the year was in 1900, you know how long a second is. Now, in some ways, this standard baseline was looking pretty good, that a second was a second no matter where you are and where you measured it. But it wasn't very easy to repeat the experiment. And I couldn't set up my own lab because it depended on history, and we wanted more. And so interestingly, in 1967, when we were getting into extreme time measurements, we decided to instead walk away from the universe. So before that, we had basically various forms of astronomical time. By the way, What's a mean tropical year? What's a year?
0: A uh, Measurement of time for the Earth to rotate around the sun, if we're going by your last definition.
1: So if I move closer to the sun, a year will change. If I move further away, it will change. Is the Earth is a constant distance from the sun? <laughs> well, no. Uh, and so celestial mechanics at this very close scale Because in in celestial terms, the sun is just, you know, next door. This is not good enough. So back to the drawing board. And so we started looking at distant quasars and going, well, it's not the earth relative to the sun, but it's the earth relative to the sun relative to distant points of reference. This will now define our year, they said. But again, as you start to get to 10, 12, 15 figures of accuracy here, you start to figure out that, A, the Sun and the Earth are moving relative to the galaxy, oops, the galaxy is moving relative to all other galaxies, oops, and you kind of drift into nowhere. As you try and anchor this unit of time into some observable solidity, the rock of time, you start to realize there is none out there in the universe. And I haven't even talked about relativity.
0: Ah, yes, the problem of space-time. Yeah, well, it's all of
1: that, right? So they're clever people in 1967. They're very clever people. They said, right, instead of going to the vast, let's go to the minute. Instead of getting time from the universe, let's get time from the atom. And so a new version of time came up in 1967, which is, again, astonishingly big in terms of accuracy, number of figures, we take the cesium-133 atom, which oscillates between two very fine levels of energy state. And it does so in a really stable way. It does so 9,192,631,770 times every second. So instead of defining it that way, let's reverse this. The amount of time, the duration for a cesium-133 atom to make, 9,192,631,770 state transitions, the amount of time, that's a second. We're there. We've done it. Right?
0: I'm guessing no.
1: <laughs> because. Not only is, you know, the earth slowing down, but of course the whole concept even a year is is changing so imperceptibly slowly as well, right? We're slowing down in rotation on our own axis. We're slowing down in rotation around the sun. So if we just stuck to this second as a definition, over time, you and I might not notice it, but in succeeding generations to come, midday would occur at midnight. And the summer solstice, theoretically, 21st of December, sorry, southern summer solstice, uh, would occur in winter in, in the southern hemisphere. In other words, the calendar would drift with respect to our geography. And we can't have that. So if we want the time on the wall to be the same, even in the span of human lifetimes, we have to make adjustments. So now that we've got this definition of a second, it's no use practically you don't want eight o'clock to become nine o'clock to become ten o'clock we have to make small changes
0: and this is where we do leap years where we incorporate an extra day every four years and leap seconds as well which is something i wasn't familiar with until recently
1: Well, this was the thing. We'd already got used to the leap day back in the times of, I think that again was a Babylonian thing, but certainly a long, long time ago, where if you want to take the position of the Earth relative to the sun, you have to compensate for the fact that we don't rotate a fixed amount of times when the Earth returns to exactly the same position relative to the sun. Celestial mechanics is a little bit rough and ready. So we compensate by adding in one day every four To make sure that the calendar kind of keeps in sync. And then basically every 100 years we we don't, but every 400 years we do. And then there's a whole bunch of these rules about the leap day, right? But that's still not good enough because of this issue of leap seconds. But unlike the Earth's rotation around the sun, which over the last two millennia has been relatively constant, so the rules around leap days are fixed. The rules around leap seconds are not. So between 1972 and 2012, because the Earth is slowing down, there were 25 leap seconds, and they were on average every 19 months. But quite frankly, in the period between 1999 and 2005, there were none. And in the eight-year period between 72 and 79, there were nine. And since 98, 98 up to 2012, there there have been um, four of them. So that second is erratic. Now, back in 72, in fact, 67, when we started doing this, the way we sorted this out was to take the Earth Orientation Centre and they would send out faxes. The Earth Orientation Centre of the International Earth Rotation and Reference System Service would send out faxes every six months advising whether leap seconds are going to occur in the coming six months.
0: After the tone of this fax, the time
1: is beep. Beep. Yeah, that's right. And, and And the issue was they had to do it every six months because they couldn't predict in advance. And they were trying to keep the atomic reference time within a few milliseconds of the actual time. And by inserting these leap seconds and so on, this was fine. But we now move into the wonderful world of computers and the internet. Every computer has a clock. It has an internal clock to understand when to stop doing one instruction and move on to the next. From time immemorial, computers were built with an internal clock. And that clock was meant to be stable. And so if you counted the number of clock ticks, you had a time. And, and so it wasn't long before we started to ask computers, can you tell us the time? Great. But computers tend to drift because that oscillation isn't perfect. These quartz crystals inside them or whatever they use as an oscillator tends to change. So folks said, but I want the computer to keep the time. Not your idea of the time. The time as defined by the atomic time modulated by leap seconds, (laughs) right? So, again, there are many various labels for time, and and the one we're going to talk about is UTC, Coordinated Universal Time, Uh, UTC because the French. And it works within 0.9 of a second of UT1 which is universal time as measured by counting cesium atom oscillations, but adds leap seconds such that UTC is within 0.9 of a millisecond of the Earth's rotation around its axis. Okay, so let's just review where we've got to right now. We have this highly accurate tick called UT1, which is divided, If it is defined what is a second, you know, not one second. Is 9 billion of these cesium 133 oscillations. And this continues independently of the Earth's rotation on its own axis, rotation around the sun, the movement of the solar system in the galaxy. None of those things change UT1. But we also have a second time scale, which is coordinated universal time. And the way this works is that it tries to make sure that there are 86,400 standard seconds in a day. Now, of course, those two timescales will drift because if we regard a day as being the Earth's rotation, as it slows down, we have a problem. And if we want to keep the seconds of the same duration, but keep the idea of a day as being the Earth's rotation, we have to do some compensation. And so the way this works was we inserted leap seconds. And so occasionally in UTC, we add a second. And the way we decided to do this back in the 60s was to actually define two minutes that could possibly be 61 seconds long. The final minute of the 30th of June and the final minute of the 31st of December before everything else ticks over could be 61 seconds long. This then allows UTC to keep accuracy with not only a standard second, but with also with celestial mechanics of the Earth's rotation. This is good. So we've come along with computers, and we want the computer to tell the time. And we can't just leave the computer on its own, because the, the clock will drift. So we'd like synchronized computer times. And we invented a protocol to do this called the Network Time Protocol, NTP. And it's actually a brilliant protocol. It is incredibly simple, but incredibly good. To describe this is almost weird. I tell you the time, you tell me the time. You also echo back what I told you. So I say, the time is nine o'clock, and you say, Oh, it's good that your time is nine o'clock. My time is one minute past nine and you send me back that answer. So I see coming back from you, not only the time when I sent the message and the time you received my message, but the time you sent your response. And as your response will hit my computer, I'll also record that time. Now, this gives me a continuous sequence of time ticks. And if I analyze the drift and lock in against this signal, if you are a reference timer and I am a client, I can take a whole sequence of these, average them out and say, well, irrespective of transient network jitter, I now have a steady signal. In other words, if I can remove the small variations of packet dynamics and queuing and actually get back to the underlying basic frequency of packet out, packet back, packet out, packet back, do this regularly enough, then we can synchronize our clocks. And the assumption here is you're not trying to adjust my definition of a second. That's okay. You're trying to alter my definition of the universal coordinated time. UTC. You're trying to alter my wall clock time. It's a really simple protocol. It operates on UDP port 123. It operates in the clear. There are clients, there are servers. The servers are at various stratums, which are degrees of accuracy. Stratum 1 server in NTP receives its signal from one of these reference sources of UTC 1 which is basically a cesium clock or similar, with leap seconds. So it's not doing UT1, it's actually doing UTC. The Stratum 2 server receives its signal from Stratum 1 and it then sends out this sort of time as reported by a Stratum 1, which might be slightly inaccurate. That's why it's called Stratum 2. There are Stratum 3 and so
0: on. Do these levels of stratum help to improve efficiency, whereby computers don't always have to check with Stratum 1?
1: Well, not only that, but an NTP client would be crazy to rely on just one server. And so what you do is you get a bunch of these together and, and you basically take the average, but you're a little bit cleverer than that. You tend to put more credibility on a lower stratum number. So if I receive a different time from stratum two than I'm getting from stratum one, well, I'll take the one. So this then allows you to give get a bunch of, of time signals and a bunch of credibility levels. The or framework also works because a Stratum N server can only peer with Stratum N minus one. So you can't set up loops. Threes can only peer with twos, twos can only peer with ones, and ones can only get their time from a UTC reference. So we can't get strange clocking loops that would send this all into a spin. So with a little bit of maths a little bit of packet exchange, we're off and running. And using NTP and having a set of NTP servers, my computer, my phone, my wristwatch, my, my device, if it's running NTP, is now astonishingly accurate with the UTC time. We all get the same time, right? Again, I'm guessing wrong. <laughs> There're a bunch of problems with this 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 issue as usual. So, let's just run through a few of these just for fun. Any UDP protocol is a problem because there's no sort of security. Anyone can spoof anything. And it's quite easy for someone to pretend to be a stratum 1 server by taking over that IP address and responding with rubbish. Whoops. Equally Whenever an NTP server receives a packet, it sends one back. So we've used this in various forms of denial of service attacks. That a bunch of folk co-opted zombies in an attack farm sends NTP messages to an NTP server using the source address of the intended victim. The server sends it all back to the victim and basically overwhelms. Them. Now, this is kind of Okay, except there are certain NTP packets where the answer is much, much bigger than the question. List the stratum servers is is kind of one of them. And so we've had all kinds of issues with NTP being used for evil. And so we've had to go to a lot of effort to actually make NTP a little bit less promiscuous to stop it being a mechanism for attack. But then we've got to think about the next problem here which is, what do we use time for? And we use time in all kinds of subtle and insidious ways. I go to websites and I say, HTTPS, blah-de-blah. I use transport layer security. And this is all based on digital signatures. And I know that this is real because someone, a certificate authority, has issued a certificate to say your key pair is you. They're attesting that the public key that I'm believing is your public key is yours and the private key you're using to if you will make the puzzle that I need to solve with your your public key that's genuine. Now, any certificate authority cannot and will not issue an eternal certificate. That doesn't work. So what they normally do is put in time fields in this certificate that says, up until the 31st of December 2021, this certificate is good. After that, it's not. Now, oddly enough, when I get a certificate, I don't check back with the certificate authority. That's too slow. That's too inefficient. That's too wrong. I just check with my local time. And so if my war clock says it's after the 31st of December 2021, don't believe it, then I won't. So what if you, the nasty attacker, could change my time? I'll believe stuff that I shouldn't. I'll believe stale information. I can be the victim of a so-called replay attack because the time is wrong for me. I will believe stuff that I shouldn't. So Corrupting the time is a problem. And we'll get back to that a bit later with with secure NTP. But I, I just wanted to finish off the discussion about NTP and also what's going on here about the other reason why NTP has been a source of endless heartache over these damn leap seconds. You see, computers don't like having a 61 second minute. They really, really don't. And The way this worked in the standard version of Unix, POSIX, was that on the leap second, they really did wind the system clock back by one minute. What's the time? One second to midnight. What's the time? Still one second to midnight. But if I wrote code that said alarm me in one second, what does it mean? Now, (laughs) I need to write an exception here. But since 1972, there's only been about 25 of these exceptions. And they're tested irregularly, and they're tested at the worst possible time. They're basically tested at midnight, 31st of December, UTC, which is where most people are either hopelessly drunk because they've just had New Year, or they're doing the countdown because they're about to have it. Nobody is paying attention. And so one of the less exercised and more serious issues around changing the time is occurring at the one time of the year where you know,
0: (laughs) you know,
1: no one is paying attention.
0: And things have been disastrous. Give us an example of disastrous, Jeff. Oh, the Sabre
1: airline reservation system for a whole bunch of airlines went down for a day or two. Whoops. how big do you want this? Uh, banking systems, they've had a whole bunch of these systems go down because that leap second caused the machines to do an infinite loop. And so you didn't and couldn't get them out until you literally yanked the power plug because it wasn't going to fix itself. It was just sitting in a tight instruction but going, wow, I am so confused. I'm going to execute this same code forever. Thank you, POSIX. Now. Google did this a little bit differently, and you can either fix all the code around timing, signals, and alarms, and account for this weird minute, and you're only going to execute this code at most once every six months, but no, that's not true, at an unknown point in time sometime in the future when the next leap second occurs that nobody knows in advance. How do you test that code? <laughs> you can't. So Google decided to do something a little bit different I thought it was quite clever. When they got notice of a leap second coming, because everyone does get notice, we know within six months, they took the 20 hours before midnight UTC and they dilated the local clock and every second was 13.9 microseconds slower than this standard second. So they smoothed out the one second difference. So this means that you get to the leap second across 20 hours and every second is still basically a second. But in essence, the smearing occurs in ways that applications simply don't notice. Now, there are other approaches. Uh, Red Hat did one and, and Microsoft did one. But this smearing was actually really important because, in essence, you don't need special code. Every minute is still 60 seconds. Every day is still 86,400 seconds. And you don't notice this odd dilation of 20 hours of seconds before a leap second. And so we've managed since 2015. which, <laughs> By the way, in 2015, who went down? Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Netflix, Amazon, Apple. <laughs> Uh, We haven't had one as bad ever since. So, you know, we've managed to solve that problem, which is good. We're about to hear, by the way, in the next couple of weeks, whether there's going to be a leap second on June 30 this year. Considering the recent volcanic activities and so on, the Earth's geometry or geography physically is changing. Uh, It may well be wobbling. We may well have a leap second. Let's wait and see. Will get told pretty soon. So let's move on to the other thing about the security of time. Because as I said, if I can change your time, I can make you believe things that you should not have believed. I can make you vulnerable. So the first thing we did to actually check this out in APNIC was actually ask people what the time was. It's a bit like standing outside a train station when it pulls in in the morning commute going, what's the time, what's the time, what's the time? And you know, everyone should say at the same time, right? So we run a broad-scale measurement system where we load up a small amount of code into uh, ads, and we send out around 15 million of these ads every day. And so we are asking via ads, 15 million endpoints every day across the entire internet, from the Faroe Islands to South Africa, everyone. What's the time? And we get back a whole bunch of answers. And most of them say, this is the time. And if we compare their view of the time to our time, almost like a a coarse version of NTP, by and large, they're pretty accurate. There might be some network jitter in the way, but yeah, we, we basically agree what the time is. But a visible proportion of them are accurate to the second, but inaccurate to the hour. Oh, UTC is at 1 at 1 at 1 p.m. It's not midday. UTC is at 3 p.m. It's not midday. In other words, they're right by the second and wrong by the hour. So what's going on here, Jeff? Mobile operators. (laughs) Where do mobile phones get their time signal from? Well, they get it from the operator. They don't get it from satellites. They get it from Stratum 1 servers. And some folk evidently have misconfigured their infrastructure. And instead of sending out... An NTP UTC time, they send out an NTP local time. How do we know? Because you look at India. India's time is out by 30 minutes. It's UTC plus, and someone will correct me, but I think it's four and a half hours. And when we look at all the machines that are out by 30 minutes, they're all in India. And we also had a look at other places where we actually see that instead of being UTC plus a certain number of hours. It's a certain number of hours and a bit. They're accurate to the second, but they're out by the and a bit number of minutes. And so this quest for everyone runs the time is actually dependent on a bunch of operators who really don't pay enough attention. And a sizable number of folk who are using clocks that are right by the second, but wrong by the hour, bizarrely. And no doubt they alter their local time configuration to compensate. So they never actually see the problem, but they're vulnerable. Because when their clock is wrong, they will believe things that are stale potentially, or they won't believe things that they should because they're working, if in the past, not not in the current time. This is an issue because so much of our stuff is time. And you go, well, it's certificates, isn't it? Well, yes. What about network file systems? What about shared documents? How do you figure out who made the change last time? Because that's the question. Who made the change last in time? So if we're working on a document and all of our edits are tagged with the time, and it's the time of the editor, not the time of the server, then what will come out is the wrong information, the wrong document, the wrong thing. And you think, well, it's just people editing a single file. But no, it's things like the network file system. Wherever you've got shared systems, even backups, if the time is skewed, your data is skewed. And that can be a problem. That can be a huge problem. Now, how do I stop people playing with NTP? Because unlike other systems like the DNS, where I can put all the servers close to the clients, I can cozy up. My recursive resolver is within the same ISP as me. Nothing moves across the internet. By its very definition, NTP Stratum 1 servers are sparse. There are only a few of them, and you've got to get them across the internet. And so if someone's playing with those NTP packets between me and my local Stratum 1, I get a dud signal. I get the wrong answer, and I then have the wrong time and that's a really bad thing. So we know this. We understand this. And we developed another version of NTP called, well, we had two options, SNTP or NTPS, the S for secure. And what's going on there is that the packets are exactly the same interchange, but they're now encrypted. Now, this is done in software. And encryption is hard and it's slow. And so what you're doing when you're running secure NTP is you have a lot more confidence that the signal you're getting is good, but you're adding to the drift and the slew of that signal because the local computation time in encoding and decoding these encrypted messages. And so there is a standard out there, but use with caution and use with extreme care because of the encryption overheads. But there are a lot of clever people out there And one of the sort of islands of cleverness (laughs) is not Apple and not Google. It's actually our little friends in Sweden called NetNod, who have done a number of surprising projects. And one of the latest ones they announced this in January 2022 was actually an implementation of secure NTP in hardware. So... First, you sort of take the basics of a FPGA, Floating Point Graphics Accelerator, to actually give you fast computation. And then you wrap up in that also NTP itself. Then that gives you an open source version that is implemented in Hardware of secure NTP. NTP, where if you're dealing with a secure server, no one can play with the packets between you and the server. You know who you're talking to. They know they're talking to you, because that's the way you want to set it up. And the signal, the underlying, this is my time, is what the server believes the time is and what you believe the time is. And so NTP then operates with a lot more integrity than the current system.
0: And is this hardware supposed to be integrated in the NTP servers, or is it supposed to go out to all the clients and servers around the world?
1: Well, security is symmetric. You can encrypt, but I've got to decrypt what you do. And so if you've got a sensitive area of application where you really want the time and you want to be sure that it is the time, which is not normally my mobile phone, not normally, but if I'm running some kind of, I don't know, secure system, or even if I'm someone like a cloud provider where I'm running shared services where the time is important, then I should be looking at this going, I need that. I need that because, oddly enough, it is an attack surface. NTP can be changed without my knowledge on me, and then I start running into all kinds of problems with my services. So it's, it's one of these kind of critical infrastructure roles that if you operate them and you know who you are if you do, you should be looking at this with incredible interest because it is important. It is very important.
0: And is this something that vendors also need to be working to integrate to? Or is this down to clients and, as you noted, cloud providers, servicing clients trying to implement it themselves?
1: Well, it's hard to say. The NTP market is small. It's not massive. And so vendors are few and far between. And most of this has actually been implemented by the time nuts, by, by the folk where time is of critical importance. This is still the spirit of the old internet of shared open source code, and folk working on this is largely software. And up until this particular announcement from uh, NetNod, NTP and Secure NTP were all just software modules. And so why would someone try and enter with a commercial product where it's being given away for free? And the answer is, well, what's the point? And so, no, it wasn't ruthlessly commercially exploited, but critically important nevertheless. Because you know, time is critically important. What can I say? So, yay, slowly and surely we're kind of getting around these issues. Leap seconds largely, if we have one on June 30th or one next December 31, shouldn't really cause the heartache and problems it caused in 2015. Shouldn't. Attacks based on subtle corruption of the time shouldn't be occurring anymore. Because as we get if you an increasing appreciation of running secure NTP amongst the folk whose business it is to know and do this, we should be actually securing that part of it. Will we still get NTP attacks, DDoS attacks? Well, if you have cleaned up your configuration and stopped being promiscuous in answering with massive answers, and there are numerous blog articles about securing up NTP in that respect, and all you're really doing is sending out a packet for everyone you receive, you're not really contributing to the problem. There's no amplification attack going on, so that bit's under control as well. So, you know, on the whole, it's a better story today than it was five or six years ago. On the whole, we're kind of cleaning things up. Um, The Earth is still slowing down. (laughs) Those two milliseconds a century or every thousand years or so. We, We can't stop that.
0: We're still waiting for the next ice age.
1: We're still waiting for the next ice age. There are tectonic movements. There's still geology. Time is still a variable thing. Oddly enough, there was a standards effort because the ITU still has control of time. And this is a periodic debate. Because the deltas are so small between UT1 and UTC, these leap seconds were considered such a big problem that a number of national delegations have been pushing for many years to actually move UTC over to UT1 and just let the time drift. Just keep on leaving a day as exactly for 86,400 seconds and allowing midnight to effectively shift forward as the Earth slows down. Their position being a few milliseconds of every millennia, meh, no one will notice. These leap seconds are killing us. Let's stop even trying to be uber clever here and let's just lock a second and say, yeah, midnight's going to move. A number of national delegations want that change. A number of other national delegations don't. They have been debating this now for, well, it hasn't been a 1,000 years, but it has been a damn long time. I think it's getting up to 15 or 20 years without resolution so far, and no doubt they will continue to meet virtually these days uh, <laughs> in the ITU, and talk about time and whether it should be a second is a second is a second, or talk about well, yes and no.
0: <laughs> and we're not even talking about the metasphere yet, as well, and how we're going to be measuring time in that.
1: Oh, don't don't make me go
0: there. Um, <laughs> it's been a hard enough role as it is. But uh, <laughs> well, we'll leave that for another episode, Jeff. Yes. I've had a great time talking and learning about time, pun intended. It's a great topic to start a new year on, especially given the recent announcement of the world's first hardware implementation of NTP and the upcoming announcement that is due in the next few weeks as to whether or not we will be getting a leap second this June, the first we would have had since December 31st, 2016. Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please do subscribe, leave a comment or rating and tell your colleagues about it. And if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at or our Apenic social media channels. And be sure to check out the ApeNick website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.